um, you know, buildings out there. They had sand, silt, and clay particles that were all stacked together, giving you a room for that soil biology for air and water and nutrients to kind of thrive. And when you run a tillage implement through it, then you're basically just crushing that. So it's like a natural disaster, a hurricane or a tornado or something that's crushing all those aggregates. And so before anything productive can go on again, those, that soil biology needs to build that back up so that they have a place to work. This is Court Winnicky, a marine surveyor living in Seattle, Washington, and you are listening to the Vance Crow Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, we talk with Kate Vogel of North 40 Ag. Kate is an agronomist, and she advises farmers in this dry uh, frontier land of Montana about how they can diversify their crops and plant crops that some of them have never tried before and have never been grown in the land where their parents and their parents' parents have grown crops for years doing. So it is a very interesting conversation. I learned a lot about drought and about making soil choices and what is changing in the great northern land of Montana. I hope you'll uh, stick around to check it out. Kate was great. Before we get to the interview, I wanted to remind people about a project that we've been working on called the Connections Prompt. This is a project where I was working in the Articulate Ventures Network saying, hey, maybe you want to connect with an old teacher or you want to reach out with a relative that you used to be in contact with, but you just never did. I know coronavirus shattered so many of our social networks and have prevented us from being in the kind of contact that allows you to know what's going on in some of the people that are important to me's lives. So what we did was I started writing connections prompts once a week. If you sign up for the prompts, you will receive an email from me that says, write a person like this. And then I give you an example, a person that I have personally written that way. And then at the end, it has a little bit of a writer's tip, something that makes writing emails a little bit easier. I know my wife loves to write emails to uh, express how she feels about people, but she gets hung up on how do I start? What should I say? Why should I even tell them that I'm writing? And so those writer's tips are things that make this process go easier and help you get better over time. We've got 52 uh, connections week our list has been growing and growing and we would love to have you so if you're interested in doing this project go to vancecrow.com slash connections to sign up and uh, get those prompts we're going to head to the interview now with kate vogel of north 40 ag kate vogel welcome to the podcast thank you So you are with North 40 Ag and you're in Montana and a lot of people that have never been to Montana, but they have this kind of rugged West idea of it. And it's kind of the idea of the frontier. Do you think Montana still is the frontier in this modern day and age? Uh, A lot of ways, yes. Like, especially when you're looking at some of the ag community and the the spaces between. Um, But we have seen, it seems like an influx in the last year of more people coming in. There's a little bit more traffic on the roads and uh, some of the towns are getting a little bit busier. What do you think is drawing people to Montana? Are they going out there to be farmers or to start their ranches or why are they heading there? Um, like you said, I think that people have a big view of they just want to be out west and Montana is kind of that last place. And so with people being able to work from home a little bit more, I think that they can go ahead and travel and find their secluded place and kind of join the community. And so where is North 40 Ag, your company located in Montana? I really don't know the geography of Montana very well. Yeah, so um, we are um, just east of Billings. So Billings is in the south center part of Montana, basically, you know, 50, 60 miles, uh, 70 miles from the border of Wyoming. And um, 
Valentine, Montana is where we're located. So that's about 20 miles east of Billings. Um, there's Billings is the biggest city in Montana. We're just over, I want to say like over just over 100,000 people, 120,000 people. Um, so we are near the biggest population center. So you came across my radar when I was uh, going out to Twitter saying, I want to do an ag series and um, I want to talk about issues that are going on. What are farmers facing right now? And uh, when I came across your website, I realized you're running a company that I didn't really know existed, which is that you guys give advice on what cover crops people can plant. And you even create like the mixtures of seeds for people. If you were explaining your business to somebody that does not understand agriculture, cover crops are no different than regular crops. How do you explain this to them? Yeah, so um, especially in Montana, a lot of the cover crops are used as forage crops, um, kind of in place of another crop or in place of fallow. So Montana's drylands um, has a lot of crop fallow. So that means that they grow a crop one year and the following year don't grow a crop at all. Um, and the idea of storing water for the following year. Um, what they found over time is and so through research um, that really you're not storing as much water as you're hoping. And so now a lot of guys are kind of changing that mindset to growing a crop every year and using that off year to potentially graze, um, use it on their livestock or to add just diversity to the rotation. Um, so we do a lot of custom blends either for grazing or to try to fix some of the other problems that are in the field. That's such a weird turn of phrase, like that they would store water in the ground. Like that, that doesn't even compute in my Missouri mindset <laughs> where we get 40 inches of rain. Right. So our average annual precipitation across the state is pretty variable, but it's anywhere from 12 to 15 inches a year. And so they're trying to store enough to grow that following year's crop. Um, but what research has shown is that in the best case situation, um, you can only store about 25% of the moisture that falls in that fallow period. So if you're fallow for a year and you have 12 inches of annual precipitation, the best case situation, you would be storing three inches of additional moisture. Um, the rest of that's either lost to evaporation or deep percolation or runoff. Um, but they're, you know, in the older mindset that that was enough to grow, you know, a better crop. And so when you're putting this, you call it a forage crop. This is like, hey, we're going to put it in there. And then the year that we're not planting crops, we're going to let like cattle go in there and feed or we're going to just have it to wildlife. What does that actually mean in practice? Yeah, it's both. So some, some guys are doing it crop, you know, putting it strictly in place of that fallow. Some guys are diversifying their rotation in addition. So you see um, peas, lentils, vetches, some of the pulse crops are starting to really come into Montana. Um, it goes back and forth between Montana and North Dakota as being the largest pulse grower in the United States. So it fits really well in a wheat rotation, but then these cover crops fit also. Um, and so they'll plant a cover crop and typically the guys, especially like in Eastern Montana, use them for grazing and they can use them to graze mid season, um, maybe to defer off you know some of the rangelands so they can rest that rangeland a little bit better or a lot of them have been using it for kind of a storage crop so they don't have to feed as much hay you know the idea of montana we do get a fair amount of snow and so in that winter period when they would normally be feeding if we can plant a storage crop that's going to stand up tall the cattle still prefer to graze over eating hay so you can put something out there that stands that they can still go out there and eat has great nutrition for them and that defers having to roll it into a bale and roll it back out and feed them you can do it with something that you just kind of stockpile for them 
I'm struck because like I'm a Midwestern kid and, you know, worked at Monsanto. So I kind of think about crops in terms of them being in rows. You plant a seed and then you go a little bit further forward. You plant another seed, but there's space in between those. But pulses, they don't really. Do you do you plant pulses in rows in the same way that you do like corn and soybeans? Um, you don't use a planter, you use a drill on all your pulses, your cover crop, your wheat or anything like that. So they're going to be in rows, depending on the guy's plant, you know, situation, they're going to be anywhere from seven and a half to 10 inch spacing on average. So they're still in rows, but they're just not as, you know, defined, you know, you're not going to have the exact row space in between that you do with a corn or a soybean. And what does that mean? A drill? Is it because you're doing something different than just like carving a hole in the ground to drop it in? No, so on your on corn, corn uses a planter. And so what that has is that has meters that are gonna measure exactly where that plant or that seed is falling. So it's gonna be a pretty exact um, planting method. So it's gonna, you know, you're on 30 inch or 24, whatever row spacing it is. And then you're gonna set that exact population of what you want that plant, that population to be. So um, it has discs, discs inside that a lot of times are vacuum. They'll suck that corn plant uh, or corn seed up, and then it's going to drop it on a schedule or a certain rotation so that those plants are going to be a certain spacing within your row. With a drill, it's not as precise. We call it kind of a controlled spill. So rather than saying we're going to have 1 million seeds per acre of wheat, we know we're going to have probably 60 pounds an acre, a bushel, or 60, 70 pounds, whatever we decide that seeding rate is. And so we're calibrating on a pound weight. And so you're that's going to suck it up and it's going to blow it out, but it's not going to blow it out as precise. So you might have, you know, wheat that's right next to each other, and then you might have a little gap or something like that. It's more of a controlled spill that you're planting with. So you don't get the precision you get with the planter. And so, I mean, I used to work for a seed company, and so I'm very aware that, you know, each year they come out and say, oh, this this one has a new stand. It's going to get a little bit taller. We've actually got another, you know, it's going to get a half a bushel more per acre or two bushels or whatever that is. Does that go on in the pulse market? Like, what is it that farmers are buying when they go out to buy pea seeds or whatever? whatever? I don't even know what all fits into the pulse world. <laughs> Yeah, so um, corn is pretty unique. Corn and soybeans is kind of that market you're talking about. You have a lot of tech involved in making those seeds or kind of breeding up those seeds. So there's going to be a turn over each year of like, you know, what other problems are coming up. They have, they're, they're invested in, you know, making those varieties better continuously. Um, pulses are going to be some more similar to wheat. So pulses fall under the category of um, peas, lentils, um, chickpeas, uh, anything that's kind of those cool season legumes are a lot of your pulses. Um, and those are bred mainly by universities still. And so a lot of the seed is, um, some of it's older. So you're using some, you know, seed that's not protected. Um, and then you're also using seed that's, you know, being bred by universities that are going through their programs. And then there are some new private seed companies that are coming out with some different genetics out there to kind of fit the market of what it's going into. So the breeding, you know, does have some disease and uh, packages like that, but it's also going into having a more consistent product for dog food or for people or whatever, so that they can keep that protein level at a certain level. So it doesn't vary as they're putting it into the end product. 
I remember being struck. I one time I was in my late twenties, probably, and with my brother, he was grazing some cattle, and we went over to look at the corn, and I was like, "Why does this corn look like it's sick?" And he was like, "Well, it is, right? They can get fungus, they can get these diseases." And it had never dawned on me that a plant could get sick, and that you could you could create resistance. You could give genetics that would be like, "No, this plant already knows how to get around this sickness." But I think that's like something that people living in the city don't have any concept of, of like a blight. It's, it's just something that is not a part of their life. So explaining it to them is really hard to wrap your mind around. What sort of blight is, uh, is a danger to the types of crops that you advise your customers on? Um, so, you know, the pulses can have quite a few different um, challenges. So there's some different fungal issues. So Ascochyta is one that can be a challenge. Um, it can be um, seed borne and get into the soil. Um, and then there's also... There's and what does it do? Ascochyta? Ascochyta. Ascochyta. What does it do to you, to the plant? Um, it basically aborts it. It kills some of the, t- the tissue. You start to see leaf spots and then it will, um, it's probably the major disease of peas in kind of our region. And being soil borne, what happens is if you get that into a field or seed borne, I guess, um, you can potentially affect the crops in the following years. So if you don't have a long enough rotation between your peas, you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot where you can basically breed this disease up so it makes it hard for you to grow peas in the future. So tell me a little bit about why a farmer needs advice on seeds, because I think the general conception would be like, I've got some land, I want to grow some food here that I'm going to sell at a good price. Why, why is there somebody that comes along and says, we can give you better advice than what you, you would just make on your own? Because um, farmers do a lot of jobs. Um, so I was actually just talking to a group the other day and we were talking about how, you know, as a farmer, I'm sure lots of people have heard this, you know, they're, they are meteorologists. They have to know when the weather's coming, when to plant something, what that soil temperature is going to be to make sure that they're putting that plant in at the exact right time, what weather events are going to have effect on that crop. They're also um, mechanics because they have to make sure that all of their equipment is in working order, that they can get out into the field, that they do have a breakdown, that they can manage that. Um, to continue doing their job. You know, we have irrigation, so, you know, that's a whole nother component. Um, You have to be a marketer, so you have to know what the markets are and how to get, you know, move your crop. And so you have so many different jobs that sometimes it's easier to take a portion of that job and let somebody else who's going to be doing, you know, more research, staying on the forefront of some of those issues, make recommendations for you throughout that growing season so you can keep up on all of the other jobs that you have going on as well. So when you get into the world of doing, um, you know, agronomy and helping farmers choose your seeds, that like, it feels like a trust business, right? Because you're selling them something that they can't actually see. They have to like put it in the ground, make an investment in it, and then hope that what you're saying is true. How do you get those first couple of customers to trust you? Yeah, so when, us, when we built 140 Ag, the, I guess we went into it from kind of that side. So my husband farms um, with his family, and he had started getting interested in cover crops and some of these ideas. And um, the first year he had planted it, um, you know, we had uh, something out there that we didn't select. There was a radish that was in that 
seed mix that we didn't know what it was. And we had a really a drought year. We had six, uh, our average annual precipitation is about 13 inches here. And that year we only had about six inches of annual precipitation. And there was this radish that was out there that was the size of a regulation football. So women, we grew this giant radish on essentially no moisture. So we were like ecstatic and trying to repeat this. And when we took that seed or, you know, took that radish in and I plop it on the counter where Mark got the seed. And I said, you know, what is this? They had no idea. And they called where they got the seed from and they had no idea. So it was a little disheartening that we couldn't reproduce it, but it was even scarier that what was next, like what could be the bad thing that comes in that mix that we Oh, yeah. And so Mark had come from a line of most farmers, right, where he's trying something new. And sometimes, you know, if it doesn't work, then they're never going to do it again. Um, I'm an agronomist. And so we thought, you know, we believe that there's a lot to offer here and that if it's not done right the first time, the guys aren't going to come back and do it again. So we knew that we could offer some education with this. So to bridge the gap of people starting to believe us and trust us, one, we do a lot of it on our own place, but two, we do a lot of education events. We do workshops and field days and roundtables in order to get guys to understand it and go out in the field and look at the neighbor's stuff that you don't usually have an opportunity to see to make yourself feel a little bit more comfortable with the idea. So you used a term that for in agriculture, everybody's heard this, but unless you've actually been around it, you, you have no concept of what is an agronomist. Right? <laughs> and so you actually were referred to me by uh, one of my favorite agronomists, um, the Danica Kluth. And uh, she said you would be a very interesting person to talk with. But what is an agronomist and what separates, you know, one from another as far as what they know or what they specialize in? Yeah, so Danica has to say that now because she works for me. So she, Oh, she does? I didn't know yeah. that. Oh, yeah, yeah. all right. Good job, Danica, for <laughs> getting your boss on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but agronomists can kind of mean several different things. Um, typically, we go to school and study soils and crops or soils and plants. Um, and depending on where you are, you can become a little bit more specialized. So in your region of the world, you'll probably know a lot about corn and soybeans. Um, Montana is pretty unique because we have so many different crops, which can be challenging. You know, we have just right here, we have um, corn, soybeans, um, sugar beets, malt barley, uh, winter and spring wheat. We do have some of the pulses around here, um, safflower, sunflower, alfalfa, um, there's flax, and then there's a whole list of others that are still out there that I haven't named that are grown across the state and even realistically in this you know, hundred mile region. And so when you give people, Hey, I'm going to help you figure out your pulse mixture. You're going to grow sunflowers this year. Um, like uh, this is going to match what you have going on in your fields. You got to harvest those, but then you got to find somebody that wants sunflower seeds or oil or wherever. So is there just a ton of milling going on in the state of Montana or do people have to truck it all over the country in order to be able to get it processed? There's a lot of trucking. <laughs> So um, there are certain things, the pulses are all kind of getting set up where they have um, locations that they can go to. And a lot of those contract with specific, and a lot of it's um, international investment that's going to different places. You know, a lot of the pulses, lentils are going to India or you know, different locations that some of these crops are going. Um, sunflowers, like I know we've grown them and they get trucked um, either in North Dakota or out West. 
um, for bird seed or oil. Um, so it's a lot of times when we're making recommendations and working with a guy, I'm not necessarily doing all that marketing um, research for them. I might have some, you know, some leads on where they can look, but we're looking at that crop and what might be the best for them. So what I'm trying to do is make recommendations, kind of looking at their personal goals. And I think that when we're talking about farmers, we really have to look at what's important to them and what do they have in order to, to accomplish some of those things. So when I sit down to make recommendations with somebody, I'm looking at, you know, what is their economic need? What do they need to make off this? You know, sometimes we work with guys. Isn't the answer always, I want to make as much money as possible? It is, but and not when you set it with a, a slew other goals. So like, what do you need to make off of it? What do you want your quality of life to be? And what do you want the place to look like? So you might want to make a lot of money, but then you also want weekends off to go watch your kids play basketball. So that's going to cancel out maybe the potential you have to make a ton of money. You know, so it's kind of looking at that spectrum. You might make want to make a lot of money and wheat's really high right now, but you've had some, you know, disease issues or maybe wildlife's really important. So, you know, it's important to maybe add another crop into that rotation to, you know, keep it looking like how grandpa had it or whatever. So it's when you start to stack all those three ideas on top of each other, then you can make a better recommendation for a person on what they should be growing. And that economic side might have what sort of equipment do they already own to make this transition to adding something else in their rotation easier. It's, it's just so interesting because it, like in Illinois and the I states, it's really, there's not much choice about what you grow. Certainly you get to choose which corn seed you plant or if you want to do corn or soy, but this idea that you could completely change the crops that your farm is raising is like hard for me to, to wrap my mind around. When you think about the wide differences between what the goals are of the farmer like what's the what's the what's the divide i mean we talked about make as much money as you can and go to basketball games and keep the farm in line with uh the way granddad did it but what are other considerations that that people have that somebody in the city wouldn't even be able to guess um you know going back to how the complexity of farming so you know when you grow something like wheat or you always grow corn it makes it a little bit easier you know you kind of set your mind at ease you have you know what to do there's not an unknown of adding a whole nother type of crop in there so sometimes that's kind of a you know concern but what we're seeing is you know where we are only growing wheat or growing wheat fallow or you know you don't have a lot of other things in rotation you can start to see issues from a disease component um from you know not efficiently using all the moisture that we're getting that we're seeing some seep issues um, pests that are might be coming in um, so we are looking at adding in cultural practices in order to you know being a rotation and other things in order to fix those issues so um you know, a lot of guys would like to just grow wheat and wheat is a base and that's what we've grown, but we're seeing as we don't add some of these other um, cultural practices or adding rotation and we're starting to see issues with what's going on in some of the fields. You had mentioned that there are pulses that are moving further north or they're changing where they're grown at. Why is that? What, what makes it so crops that used to not be grown in Montana are now possible? Um, I think some of it is like the adoption of no-till. So where we can, you know, store, you know, when you do full width tillage, you lose a lot of that soil moisture. And so when you're looking at that fallow period, maybe water storage is a little bit more important because you would already, you know, you lost so much just to get that plant, that crop planted. Now where we have no-till um, drills that, you know, essentially do no disturbance at all. And you're leaving that residue on the soil surface, you can start to plant another low residue crop. So you can take 
a wheat crop that's pretty high residue and follow it with a pea crop that's really low residue, has a very low carbon to nitrogen ratio, and you're not gonna see, you know, you're able to store that moisture in there longer. Um, one that on our dry land, for example, is we'll grow two years of wheat in a row and store all that residue up and then follow with corn on the dry land. And that corn where we typically don't get a lot of um, moisture or rainfall in July and August, that residue can hold that corn um, in so that we can at least get a good a, you know, a yield off of it later because it's using stored soil moisture and it's not evaporating off. So it's using different management practices to get those crops to work. So let's talk about uh, soil moisture and just basically rain in general right now. Do you go out and just like grab a clod of dirt and then test it for how much like, you know, water is in it? Like, how does this even work for you to judge how much moisture there is in a field? Yeah. So if you look at, you know, historic when everyone knows when it rained last and all of that, but we'll also go out. Anytime we go out to field, we always have a shovel. We're going to dig a hole and just use the feel method. You can usually feel um, what that soil moisture is, you know, what what category it falls in just by touching it, feeling it and, you know, making it form a ribbon or not. Um, right now, I could say pretty much across Montana, it's dry. Like I don't even have to dig a hole to tell you what it is. It's been really dry across the entire state. So let's talk about what that looks like in reality for a farmer, because I think people hear about drought and every experience that we've ever had is, oh, I heard they had a drought and yet I still have all the groceries I need and the pineapples and the pears and peaches and everything that they want. So drought is basically meaningless to the people living in the city unless they're, you know, their grass turns a little brown. Mm -hmm. Well, when you look at, we play on such a world market now that, you know, for example, I think Montana grows... I don't, is it Montana or Kansas? I don't remember the stat, but 9% of the world's wheat. So it's not playing, you know, a huge role into it. So if we have drought in Montana, we're not going to have a huge role in the wheat markets, you know, across the entire world. So we're still going to have bread. If we don't have enough that's coming out of Montana, we'll pull it from Russia or somewhere else. So there's such a large global market that you might have a bad year somewhere, but somewhere else is having a good year. So it's not going to affect what you're going to see at the grocery store. Um, but what it does affect is, I think, more of your local economies. Um, so, you know, when we have a dry year in Montana, ag does is a pretty big sector. And so you'll see less spending um, in some of the, you know, on some of the bigger ticket items. And so that money's not going to trickle down and move through the economy as much. Yeah, you had an interesting line on your on your website. Stronger soils build stronger communities. What do you mean by that? So as you have, you know, as you start to do things, um, some cultural practices, as you start to add more diversity, as you get more cover on your soils, as you um, keep more living roots out there, you're really focusing on that soil biology. And soil biology, you know, in some ways is going to keep us going. So um, I've heard a term like you kind of can make your own droughts or your own floods. So, I mean, and that's, you know, loose, obviously. But if I go out there and I take and I till a bunch of my, you know, fields up, I'm going to open that up to evaporation. So we're going to lose a lot of soil moisture that might be stored there. When we do get a rainfall event, what's going to happen is all those particles that used to be soil aggregates, they were kind of, um, you know, buildings out there. They had sand, silt, and clay particles that were all stacked together, giving you a room 
for that soil biology, for air and water and nutrients to kind of thrive. And when you run a tillage implement through it, then you're basically just crushing that. So it's like a natural disaster, a hurricane or a tornado or something that's crushing all those aggregates. And so before anything productive can go on again, those that soil biology needs to build that back up so that they have a place to work. Um, if you've done tillage, you've lost a lot of evaporation, but then when you get your rainstorm, it takes those individual soil particles now and they can be dislodged and moved. And if there was an area for water to move in, it's now crusting over and water can't infiltrate as much. So you're losing a lot more of it to runoff and evaporation. So, you know, just one event of not having soil cover and doing some disturbance, you can basically cause a drought that might last a while or cause a flood because you're rushing water off the field. So how we manage our soils and how they store and function can definitely cause some other issues offsite. How bad is the drought right now in, around where you're at or with where your customers are? Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, we haven't really, normally um, May and June are our wettest months. And I want to say, um, which is like two or three inches of rain um, in the month of June. And we've had, I think, like a quarter inch, something like that. So it's dry. Um, yesterday, we had guys out in the dry land who were going to, um, you know, the, basically our winter wheat isn't going to fill. So there's not going to really be anything to harvest out there. So they were going to try to take some for hay because hay is really short right now. And just going out and running the swather across the field started a fire. Started a fire? Mm -hmm. It's dry. Wow. Well, talk about this. Like you're talking about something that you're like, well, it started a fire. I mean, for most people, this is like um, an impossible thing to imagine without somebody <laughs> saying it's possible. Yeah. So um, basically, you know, you have all this equipment out there. I mean, even just uh, we'll probably get here within the next week or so. I'd say we're going to get to the fire danger where you're not supposed to drive a pickup through a field um, after one o'clock in the afternoon because that's when it starts to get really hot. Just like your catalytic converter, you know, hitting a rock is enough of a spark with it being so dry for grass or a crop to start on fire right now. Um, fireworks have obviously already been outlawed for Fourth of July. Um, and so it's just, it's dry out there. So there's just not a lot of production and everything that is normally still be green is dry and brown. Did you grow up in the environment where you had to care about whether it rained or not? Is this something new for you? Um, I grew up in an ag community. My parents weren't farmers, but um, I grew up in an ag community. So we saw it, you know, in, in the community, how everybody else was reacting. Um, but definitely marrying into a farming family, it, it makes a huge difference. <laughs> yeah, it seems to me that um, if you don't have any relationship with something like farming or the, that you need it to rain, then like you really are kind of disconnected, not just from the seasons, but from like the pulse of of the earth. And so I think it's a, a weird thing when you all of a sudden start paying attention to the rain and it actually matters to you whether or not it rains. Things like uh, prayer seem to make more sense in that context because you don't have anything else you can do other than pray right. that this thing happens because if it doesn't happen, all could be lost. Well, and I even like kind of a funny add on to that is my daughters were at daycare the other day and they came home with like a little sign that said rain, rain, go away. And I was like, we do not sing that song in this family. Like, <laughs> were they surprised by that? I mean, that had to be like a cultural lesson for them, right? <laughs> well, they weren't because they're only like two and seven months, but like the daycare was a little bit surprised. <laughs> 
So, so if you did not uh, grow up on a farm, I mean, clearly you married into it, but, but like, why did you choose agronomy? This seems like a thing that, um, well, Danica did the, a similar thing where she was not right. in farming and decided to go towards it. But why? How did you get drawn into this? Um, so I went to college. I knew I loved science. Um, so I actually have a bachelor's in chemistry and, um, I had done all sorts of research. I know I loved chemistry, but when I started to work, um, as an undergrad into some labs, I realized I didn't see any, anything outside. Um, I grew up in a very small town. I graduated with 18 people. I was in Eastern Colorado. And so I was just not feeling that sense of home of what I knew. I grew up doing 4-H and showing pigs and horses and cows and everything. And so, um, I started to look outside, of the chemistry department to try to find what I wanted. And I ran into the soil and crop sciences department and immediately fell in love with it. It was basically all of the same hardcore science, but it was an applied level where you could, you know, look at it, how like some of those general principles of science, how they work in the actual world. Um, and, you know, add that people factor in. And so it fit really well. So I had, um, I just added that majors uh, as an agronomy major. And then I also did some grad work um, as an agronomist too. And so you go to graduate school and you're going outside and shoveling up dirt and looking at it. Like, what do you do to, to study agronomy yeah. at the graduate level? My, I, so you do a project um, and my project was looking at runoff and erosion and no-till dryland systems. And so we looked at systems that were wheat fallow, um, wheat corn fallow, wheat corn millet, wheat wheat corn millet. And so we were looking at the effect of those different systems and intensifying that cropping rotation on run, runoff and erosion. And so what we found is that's where that fallow number comes from, is that as you intensify that cropping rotation, you use water more efficiently. And so you, you start to change, you know, that how much water is used over time, you know, by going away from wheat fallow. What do you think is the the difference between what farmers that you're working with that have been doing this day in and day out, what they believe is true versus what you've come to conclude as true. Where, where, where is the difference lie? Um, so it's really hard. Uh, farming's a completely different profession than a lot of other professions. You know, it lines up a lot more with, you know, tradition or, you know, families or anything like that. It's not always treated as much as a business because it's something that's a lot of times passed down. And so what, you know, what they might believe to be true might be something that they've done for a period of years and they haven't ever tried anything else. So one of the examples that I use um, when I'm talking to a group of farmers is, you know, I've heard a story that there was a, a pastor that came into a new church. And when he sat, you know, got up on the pulpit to church to preach, the whole entire congregation of the church was on the left-hand side of the, of the um, chapel. And about halfway through, he gets through all the announcements, gets a little bit through the start of his sermon, and everybody stands up and moves to the other side of the church. And he's kind of perplexed. So what's going on? He's a new guy. He doesn't really want to raise any stink. And so he does this for a couple weeks in a row. And then he goes, you know, I have to ask. And the first few people he asks had no idea. But what happened was historically that church was all um, heated by a fireplace or by and so when they first got to church, it was really cold. So everybody sits on that one side of the church to warm up. But by the time he gets to the sermon, it's too warm. And so they'll have to stand up and move to the other side of the church. Well, even though the fireplace was taken out, it still became tradition. And what they did, and nobody asked why. You just come in there and that's what you do. You follow the masses. And a lot of times that's what happens in farming. I mean, I look at um, the, the technological advances we've made, even from things that, you know, we can talk crops or seeds or genetics, or we can talk even things like, 
a no-till drill or, you know, the invention of a stock trailer versus throw loading your animals in the back of your pickup. So you might move animals across your, um, you know, your property based on um, you had to get to a certain loadout point so that they could get into the back of the pickup. Well, we invented stock trailers and now you can load them anywhere. And so no one's asked those why questions to see why we should be doing things differently on our operations. And so when you're in the middle of it and you can't see from an outside view, that makes it a little bit different of how they react. I mean, I think if you go look at basically any any um, work or anything that's being done and has been done for more than a single generation, you begin to lose why do we do this? And it becomes just like, this is what we do because the human mind can't handle all of the decisions that you have to make every single day. And so having habits or having things that we just do makes it so you can keep your head above water, but you can imagine, I guess, like, as you're describing as technology changes and as, um, yeah, the, the, what, I mean, hell, the, as trade routes change and what you can sell and who you can sell it to changes, all of a sudden options open up. And if nobody comes along and points that out to you, you just don't know. Right. Yeah, and if it's your boss that tells you one thing, it's different than if your dad tells you because you're not going to necessarily argue or put up a stink as much with you know some of your family because you grew up knowing dad knows best, right? <laughs> so. Well, and I bet that in a way, like um, you being the agronomist, somebody has to choose to bring you in, but it may also be confirming what the younger generation or what somebody wanted to change. I, I remember Temple Grandin and I were talking one time and she said to me, you're never a prophet in your own land and you shouldn't try to be, you know, like the, the people that right. you're around all the time, they don't think all of your new ideas are so great. And <laughs> so sometimes it's good to have another prophet come in and say, let me, let me show you a different way of doing it because you know the people that you're around all the time aren't always as receptive and particularly if you're talking about a business where it's run as a family right they remember you when you were in diapers or when you, right. <laughs> you know, were jumping off trees and doing all kinds of crazy stuff for sure so uh tell us what is on the horizon what changes do you think are going to come to this kind of high high desert um uh, planting over the next five, 10 years, where do you think things are headed that they aren't right now? Um, I think things are, are kind of inching that way. So I see guys um, doing a lot more diversity into their cropping rotations. I think I could see even, um, you know, a lot of guys are no-till, but they are no-till with maybe still some, you know, in the mindset of they do still a little bit of disturbance. It's just planting at one pass. And so I think that they'll be doing a little bit less disturbance as they're planting. Um, and then maybe even incorporating livestock into and so some of these areas. So you can kind of start to stack those enterprises a little bit more. So uh, as we wrap up, I, I really did not know you were Danica's boss. Tell me a little bit about how you're staffing up. How do you make decisions about bringing on agronomists? Because you're essentially extending trust to those people and saying, hey, go out and talk with these clients or these people that have been shown interest. How do you make your decisions about who to bring on? Oh, that's tough. So as we've been growing, um, we've made a lot of mistakes over the years, but now we're kind of going to the point where, you know, Danica was actually our first intern um, back in 2017. And then we have a lot of like overlapping, like her advisor was my advisor and, you know, she ended up going to school the same place I did. So we had some overlapping things, which made that a little bit more comfortable to hire her because we already know where she's coming from. Um, on some of the other people, um, it's kind of the same thing. We try to like overlap with different people. So kind of that word of mouth um, of knowing other people in order to know that, 
we can trust and you know bring them in. And then the other part would be, I think, um, we, we do a very intensive interview process. Like we bring you out for a couple of days and we take you to dinner and we make sure that we're all gonna fit in and um, have some of the same goals before we send somebody out. Because they're basically an extension of ourselves or representing us. And we wanna make sure that they have the same mindset of how to treat our customers that we do. Yeah, no, no doubt. Particularly, I mean, like, to me, it appears that your business is trust in in a way that like, kind of like investing is, but it's different, right? Because it's so somebody's farm and what they're putting in the ground, like you said, like you all of a sudden had radishes that were the size of footballs in your in your property. And you're like, why is this here? What did we do here? And so I think the level of trust that people have to have to work with an agronomist has to be really extraordinary. Right. And you, I mean, at the, at the end of the game, end of the day, it's when somebody's giving you advice. So you, you can take it or leave it. So it's not like they're out doing something in your field. They're just going to be making recommendations. And so, I mean, trust is important, but you can always make that decision to not follow their advice too. So I don't know if Danica ever uh, did a presentation for you in the last uh, couple of months, but she took this uh, class that we did in this network about how to introduce yourself. And Danica went from being like a pretty good introduction to being like this wildly good introduction where she explained what agronomy was to people that didn't know. And if she hasn't shown that to you, I highly recommend you ask her to do it because it was awesome. I'm going to ask her to do it. She has not done that. (laughs) Well, Kate Vogel of uh, North 40 Ag, this has been a lot of fun. If people wanted to learn more about your business or uh, like they've heard, hey, maybe my child would be really good at agronomy and we never thought about that. How would they go about finding you and learning more about what you do? Um, They can go to our website. It's north40ag.com. So north40ag.com. And they can get in contact with any of us from there. Well, all right. I I know what it is to be working and have a small child in the world. So I'm sure you are (laughs) exceptionally busy. It was so nice to talk with you, Kate. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for checking out this uh, podcast. This is a great time with Kate Vogel. You'll notice that we talked about a woman named Danica Kluth, who is a member of the Articulate Ventures Network. She signed up and participates in many of the activities. The one that I was most impressed with was she participated in a speaking gym where she decided, I want to get better at introducing who I am, what I do, and why I do it. And so she participated in a five-week class. And uh, if you sign up and you want to take a class on introducing yourself, you can do that by going to store.articulate.ventures and you can take the exact same class that helped Danica improve her ability to communicate or you can join our network so you can be connected with people that are interesting and exciting like Danica and like other listeners of the podcast by joining the Articulate Ventures Network. That is where so many of the classes happen live. It's where we discuss different issues and it's also where we do book club and movie night and we really are building a digital neighborhood. It's small, it's well-connected, and we really would love it if you, a listener of the podcast, would be interested in joining. You can find out more about the network by going to network.articulate.ventures. Thanks so much, and we will be back next week with another ag podcast in this ag special. Talk to you then. (laughs) 